Hello, everybody. Welcome back. This is Julie Bates with the podcast, Training the Pointing Labrador, episode number 219. And in today's episode, I am going to address uh, a few listener questions that I've gotten in uh, over the last, I don't know, couple months or so, I guess. I address a few of those and uh, wish everybody well, getting ready for the holidays, Thanksgiving coming up and Christmas, always one of the, one of the better times of the year. Um... I've had a question, again, now I'm sitting in a non-dog training place, not training dogs every day, uh, but still staying heavily involved with all of this stuff and, and uh, giving private lessons. So people can always contact me with that if they want some of that. But anyway, uh, spending a lot more time around what before I would have just normally referred to as the city dogs and city dog people. And that kind of connected up with one of the questions I got. And that was, um, now that the days are shorter, this is from a, a competitive person, days are shorter, you know, you, it's dark way late in the morning, and then it's dark way early in the evening, and, and it's, you know, with the cold, I don't know about where you guys are, but the cold has finally hit down here. We got two inches of snow uh, last night and this morning. So things are really changing. And how do they, how do you keep up you know, going with your dog and how do you keep your dog from getting kind of bummed out over the, uh, over the, the lack of activity and the lack of time and going from such an active life to one that's not nearly so active because that really can affect, as it can with you and I, it can uh, affect the dog's uh, health, their appetite, their well-being, you know, the training you've done, their fitness, all of that kind of kind of decays a little bit or can this time of year so the question was you know what can a regular person do about something like that and that was funny too because uh, there's a really nice lady that lives right across the street from me and we ran into this is in the city I'll tell you where you have to carry the little dog poop pickup bags <laughs> which I've never done in my entire life uh, and every dog has to be on a leash and all that kind of stuff and she was telling me about her dog. It was a lab something mix. And it was attacked one time by, a, I think she said a Rhodesian Ridgeback. <laughs> I'm not sure if it matters what they were attacked by. But the dog was attacked. And ever since then, it's just deathly afraid of ever encountering, encountering other dogs. And I was just listening to her describe everything as I watched what she did with her fairly decent sized dog every day. And it kind of brought those two things together because there's there's more similarity there you wouldn't think so because you know her dog is lives in a kind of a small confined thing and goes out on a leash and obviously is afraid of many many things and then plus question I get from somebody who has a very active hunting and competitive dog that's used to getting trained and getting lots of exercise and a lot of outdoor time and and so both of these people are concerned about their dogs and it just really, to me, drew some similarities. And, and one of those things is, is that both of these animals, both the, the competitive, highly trained one, and then the one that spends most of its time indoors in a, in a condominium kind of a thing, um, both of them have uh, inactivity levels that are not in their best interests. Both of them have that. Now, the dog is trained all the time and competes and hunts, knows why it's on the earth, knows what its purpose is, knows exactly 
you know, what it's missing. <laughs> it knows what it's missing, and that's your problem. This other dog, the city kind of dog, does not ha have any of that. It does not know what it's missing. It does not know what its real purpose in life is, and it knows if it goes outside, life gets really scary. So it's always better to be inside. And so both of these dogs are suffering from inactivity and from the, the time of year. Uh, but again, those of you that train, you have an advantage. Although it makes it worse <laughs> because when they don't get to go do their thing, then they're not very happy. And this other dog that the lady was real worried about uh, being so fearful um, doesn't have a clue about any of that. And that is where a lot of people's dog problems uh, exist, particularly regular people, not those of us that go out and do what dogs love to do with a great passion. And it was interesting because this lady had been to a professional trainer uh, in the metro area and had had worked a lot with the dog. I didn't even, I didn't want to ask how or why. And I don't know, you know, what those people know, so I don't even belong in their world. But the dog had gotten a little bit better about seeing other dogs, but not really. And so she mostly just kept the dog always away from, you know, other dogs and other things. I've never seen her out where everyone's walking their dogs around here all the time. I never see her out there. But she had a half lap, so I asked her, well, does your dog like to retrieve? And she said, uh, no. In the basement, if I throw something in the basement, the dog will not get it. <laughs> I was like, Okay. <laughs> Have you ever thrown anything anywhere else? Like out when you're on a walk in a park or somewhere where there's nobody around. And they never had. Said, you know that that dog has got retriever in it, right? Et cetera, et cetera. So you can see where I'm going with this. So she had never even, her way of testing how interesting her dog was in retrieving was to be indoors in a small space downstairs without windows and throwing whatever it is she was throwing. So, and maybe the dog has no interest. But anyway, she wasn't doing what this dog uh, was internally, at least part of it. And shoot, every dog. Most dogs will retrieve. Um, but it's something that they, my, my wiener dog retrieves. She, I, she'll, I can throw stuff for her all the time. And she does that on her own. She's not mimicking things that she's seeing. So both of these dogs are missing, or, or one of these dogs is missing having a clue that the world is anything but a, a frightening place and you're only safe when you're indoors. And so I don't know what her other trainer had her do, but based on what I saw, when I saw the dog just go out on a leash and walk around, and when I say walk around, those of you that take the walk will get a kind of a chuckle out of this. It's like seven or eight minutes. And it's just around off the sidewalk on the grass between the roads and then right back in again. So, I, you know, that's not even a walk. That's like a, you amble outside and relieve yourself and you amble back in. And there's absolutely no real enjoyment or pleasure of, of the outdoors. So I just suggested to her, she didn't ask me, and I'm not going to be Joan Know-It-All everywhere with all, all the dog people that I see now. But, you know, if that dog, I said, find something that your dog really enjoys doesn't need, never mind other dogs, just forget other dogs right now, because that's not really her problem. Her problem is she doesn't have a passion and a joy other than just sitting inside safely with you. See if you can go somewhere and throw something a few times, and just see if you can find some little spark of something that this dog really, really enjoys.
And, you know, retrieving is a good thing. So basement doesn't really count. You know, they're kind of outdoor dogs. So see if you can get her to, to do something outside. In other words, maybe we can replace the dread of going outside with the anticipation of going outside. So for all of the people listening to this podcast, which are not these city people, so when you don't have the time in the day for these dogs, because the sun just guarantees the rotation of the earth right now, make sure that you don't. Okay, then you, for one, you cannot just duplicate spring, summer, and fall through the winter. You just can't do it. But what you can do, again, is give this dog something to look forward to every day that involves having to think and being able to move. And preferably with these two things related together. Now, if you have a trained hunting dog and you go hunting, there you, there you go. You know, hunt when you can. Sometimes you can go out to areas, even if it's someplace where you know there aren't going to be a lot of birds, you can still go out and go through the field with your dog if it's permitted in wherever, whatever area you have. There's a lot of things you can do, but what you want to do is give this dog something to look forward to and something where they have to think. That's really important. And if you can combine structured physical exercise with um, doing something with you, with moving around, there's, it's just, that's just, your dog is going to really love that stuff. So that's very important to be able to do that if you can, Um, whether it's just taking a walk. And I don't mean a walk around on the sidewalk. I mean, going out there for, for 30 minutes, 60 minutes or more, if you have the time and the ability, keep both of you in a little bit of shape. If there's snow out there, then wear your boots. Go somewhere the dog isn't going to get injured or run into something. But get out there and do that. But I would, even if it's just a walk down to the mailbox and back and around with a couple of throws of, of a black bumper in the snow thrown so it doesn't just go straight to the bottom, right? Do it kind of a sideways thing. Do something where the dog still has to think, still has to respond. Maybe practice some of the things you do. And it looks forward to that every day. If you keep at least those skids greased, then when the season comes around again, your dog will, uh, it won't be such a big, and they won't be out of shape, and it won't be such a big thing to start having to think for you. Okay, next question was, and this was real straightforward, was I always talk about making dogs think and how that's important for, um, that's the biggest energy drain there is, is to have an animal think more than it is running for hours and hours. And it really is kind of like it can be for people as well. But so the question is how, what does that mean? Because I just talked about it. Like everybody knows exactly what I'm talking about and what does, how an animal thinks or getting an animal to think, uh, how does that work? What does that look like? And what is that? You know, I know a lot of people really get that. Uh, need no explanation at all. And others just sort of nod, you know, sure, yeah, okay. <laughs> and, then, and then go right upon, along doing whatever they want. But animals, um, animals that think are going to be more useful, more trainable, more enjoyable, uh, more stable uh, psychologically and emotionally. Uh, than animals who have never been taught to actually engage and use their head a little bit. So I've 
given a lot of detail with that with puppies, teaching little puppies to think. And I'll just give some examples of what that would be. Teaching them to sit and get a treat is just teaching them a rote behavior. They just learn through a pattern and they do something. They don't have to think a lot. All they have to do is, I heard the word sit, yum. Let me see, I dropped my bottom. Let me, give me something good to eat. That's not really the kind of thing, that's not thinking that I'm talking about. Thinking is where they actually have to, in a canine sense, problem solve. And I'll give you an example. If you get a little eight-week-old puppy and you bring it home, I don't care what breed, city dog or performance dog or any other kind, and you take this dog on the walk, preferably every day if you can, somewhere where there's not other dogs, there's not dangers, there's not cars that are they're going to get run over, there's not kids running over and swarming them, just you and the dog. And the dog is off leash, if at all possible. And you take this dog on a walk. And it's just either in the beginning it might be fearful or it might be going, this is awesome, and running all around. But one of the things they do is they stick by you. They stick with you a whole lot. So one of the things they're going to get in between your feet or on your feet. That seems to be one of the places they really search out. So what you can teach a dog that when you get in this certain proximity to my feet, that... Something you don't want to have happen happens. That is, you meet, you get, you get booted to the side. Now, understand, I didn't say kicked. You just take the side of your foot and just move them out of your way. And then once they begin to understand that, you can kind of up the, the move. So it's something a little bit where they go, shoot, I'm not going to walk over there. Every time I go rolling off to the side. So you can begin to teach a little dog to be aware of where you are and where you're walking and where your feet are. And to respect that area. That is something dogs should be taught. They should be taught. If you're going to be carrying, go walking through a field with a loaded weapon, you do not want a dog who has no, doesn't give a hoot where you are, what direction you're going, or if they're in your way, or they trip you, or they run into you, or whatever. You cannot have that. And I know a lot of people do. And it's when they're 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 weeks old that you teach them, I am restricted airspace. You do not walk in front of me. You do not cross right in front of me. You do not just joyfully smack right into me. And, you know, people with retrievers, when you have a little puppy and you're working a couple retrieves at a time, do not encourage them to run and smash into the, the front of you, into your legs or your thighs, or to go between your legs. Do not encourage that. Because when that's cute, that's what they'll do. And when they're 70 years old and running at you with a big old muddy something or other, you really, that no longer is appealing. You don't want them to do that. So if you never let them learn that they can mindlessly smash into you physically, then you never have to worry about a dog mindlessly smashing into you. So teach them to think at these early ages. Teach them to think about where you are and what that means for their behavior. And then they make the choices about the behavior. You don't. You just let them, hey, if you're going to do that, this is what happens. You decide. So that's one of the places, and many, many things like that. You know, on the walk, don't walk in front of me, don't trip me, don't smack into me. On retrieves, when they come back, they, they come back. You know, and if I have a little guy, I'll just get him over onto the side and right into the seated position. I'm not taking anything out of their mouth. 
I'm going to work on getting them to hold on to whatever they've got. But come on in and sit. So if they're dragging a little cord and I can just get that cord and just bring them in, put them right where they need to be. All right. So I'm showing them what I want. I'm not so much teaching them to think with this, but I'm hoping to do that rote. Just yeah, I do it so many times it becomes it becomes second nature to me. So that's a, a, a good one. Let's say um, another place to teach them to think is the dinner bowl. Now we're talking about little puppies. The, the dinner bowl, right? When you get the dinner bowl out and they come unglued, you can either allow that or you can teach them that you need to sit down and be calm and I will put the bowl down and you will not smack into me knock the bowl go all over the place how many times does that happen just teach them reel yourself in think about what it is you want exhibit the behavior you need and you'll get dinner so that's another real easy way it you're not it, i mean it is a control thing but most above all you're teaching them to think a little bit the dinner bowls are a good one the crate's another one the, the crate's an excellent one for dogs of all age start out with a puppy they don't come smacking it going into the crate or whatever you load them into dog box they don't do it until they are invited with kennel or whatever whatever it is you say that gets them in and then they go in and then they don't come back out and smack the door they go in and they stay in and you can close the door and when you open the door they don't come smashing out and here goes the door flying open because look how excited they are oh they're so cute they just love this and you get out and you're teaching them this incredibly obnoxious behavior another opportunity to teach this dog you're in the crate even when i open the door you're going to wait for me to ask you to come out or tell you to come out teach him that as a little puppy and yes it can be done and no, I don't do it with treats because there's a lot bigger, more important things going on when we go somewhere in a crate than eating. So uh, and I don't do it for reward. I do it because this is your job and this is my job and this is what we do. So that's a real good, good place to teach the animal to be aware of you, to be aware of the situation, to exhibit the behavior that they've been taught consistently. And there's just so many places you know when you go in the house there's so many things you know do you not want them up all over the back of the couch then never let them up there if you don't want them jumping on you don't pick them up and i know people find that just terrible <laughs> it's like if you want to go smooch with them get down where they are smooch with them then get up and then they're done that way they never learn that their happy place is with their feet on you so the thinking thing is a little puppy is really a pretty easy thing now when you get an older dog the same kind of things can be taught the very same kind of things can be taught but a lot of times uh, a lot of times if you're doing bird work what most people most people listening to this are doing when you're doing bird work okay here is really where you need a dog to think and this is another question i got about introduction to to birds when people go introduce their dog their puppy or even their dog that hasn't yet been introduced to birds at whatever age they want a certain situation to occur they want to see certain behaviors they're looking for a specific kind of thing when they undertake this bird introduction 
And I'm going to say, I understand that. And I'll admit, every time I do it, I'd love to see, you know, a little old eight-week-old puppy just lock up and slam into a point. Um, now, do they know what they're doing? No. <laughs> they're just doing what some DNA thing is telling them to do. But that, I love to see that. But I have learned long ago, do not look for anything other than the dog beginning to think. And for a dog to think about something that is new to it, like the smell of a live bird, requires that you stay out of it. Because if they're going to, to take on an understanding, take in some data, whether it be a sight or a smell or both, you sitting there yammering stuff, interjecting stuff, doing stuff, interferes with that whole thought process of, oh, what is that? And then they might be afraid, or they might be curious, or they might just be absolutely just frozen nothing. You, here's now where you really need to think. You need to just stop and watch. So if you have an artificial setup on a bird introduction, and I know a lot of people do bird in cages. I understand that. It's still artificial because not only do you have the dog and the bird, which is what this is all about, but you have the bird in a way that is restrained. And so it's going to behave in a way it would not if it were actually a bird you were hunting. It is trapped. It's going to be afraid or else just sit there because it's been through this so many times. The bird, the dog can't get to the bird. So now this thing that it's learning about is non-reachable. So you're teaching it that. So you've got all of this stuff going on instead of the bird and dog thing. If you have a bird that's either weak or dizzy, so it's just sitting there, not in a cage, but just sitting there. So the little dog smells this and then gets close to it and nothing happens and get closer and then reaches over and touches it or doesn't and it moves and it gets scared and the dog turns the other way or it goes, oh, grab it. And then they, they go, look it, I found this warm live tasty thing and they're going to run off and eat it so now we're teaching a bunch of other stuff we don't want so if you really want the best thinking the, the shortest track of teaching in my opinion i know many people differ with this i just want a bird and dog thing to go on right there and i'm not going to get in the middle of it which means i have a bird in some sort of natural thing preferably enough cover that it sits but not that it's trapped so when that dog in, in, a, in a position in a place where the breeze is going to carry out of that cover so that the dog can find it and locate this, and then I'm going to be quiet. I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to start commanding it to do anything. I'm not going to encourage it because I am interfering. I am just going to allow this to occur. And some little dogs get it, and it's just cool, and other dogs don't have a clue. I've seen dogs just step right over the bird and keep going. Didn't even register. That's not a bad dog. That's a dog who's mentally not capable of grasping this yet. And that could even include an older dog who's had so much of life that they don't even understand that there's a, there's a bird thing here and it involves them. And they actually get to participate. They might have to learn that. All of this is thought processes that go on in the dog's mind that have to happen before they can become any good at this. None of this requires your instruction. None of this requires artificial things. So you are teaching a situation that is not real and that cannot happen. I understand the logic of why people do that. I really do. 
but I have found that it's a lot faster to get to the unfettered, untail waggy, artificial point kind of a deal, or at least messed with point kind of a thing. If you let these dogs evolve through this understanding of finding a live thing on the, within their own thought processes. Now, you can only, we're not even training anything at this point. We are training nothing. We are merely introducing this bird to one of its, hopefully, great passions in life, one of its purposes, this dog. And that is to find these birds, and they're alive, and they'll, they'll go away if you mess with them. They have to learn that. So, again, having them artificially constricted, barking out things at the dogs, is putting in a bunch of factors into a situation that the dog doesn't even understand yet. Once they get very good at that, and they know about these little birds, and they've learned how to kind of use their, their senses to go find them, and that it's pretty exciting when they do, and <clears throat> when they do find this bird and it flies away or something, you know, give them something to retrieve. When they're real little, let them chase it. That's just fine if they chase it because we want them to love this stuff. We don't want to correct them on chasing. They have no context for, that's a bad thing. You want to go find it, but don't go after it. That, that makes no sense. It's just a brand new thing that they're just figuring out. And if it starts bringing consequences and corrections, it's going to make finding that bird a bad thing. So bird introduction is actually way, in my opinion, way more simple than people make it. You may have to watch birds fly away. You know, if you use quail or something, get a recall pen. You can get those little hummers back. You can get chucker back, too, uh, many times. You can use homing pigeons. That's kind of icky housing them. And they're not really a game bird, but it's better than nothing. But just let them learn about this excitement of this thing in a joyful way without intervention and without all kind of artificial stuff. And you'll know when they start getting it because now we start having a problem with them just dying to get out there and do this stuff. And, you know, they're now all of a sudden they're wanting to break out of the crate again. That's a yay. They don't let them do it. Make them still behave and think about that stuff. But when they start understanding all this stuff, really getting excited about it, if they're old enough, then you can begin to exert appropriately a few controls that do not interfere with their passion and desire and I want to say conviction about doing this. Dogs that get corrected a lot, man, they stick out like a sore thumb in the upland field because they're always concerned about doing the wrong thing all the time and they're worried. So they're very kind of, they're constricted and they're trying to be careful because they're afraid of this and this and this versus the dogs where the symphony plays, right? The music goes and they're with it and there's no correction and there's none of that kind of stuff. That's sort of how you build into that. So I hope that kind of helps at least clarify a little bit of the thinking thing. Thinking is different. You know, some, you don't interfere with thinking when they're learning something that's natural and new. Okay, obedience is not natural. Sit is not natural. Fetch is not natural. I'm not talking about that. But the bird things and the retrieving in the beginning, it needs to just be, this is what you do and it's the most fun thing in the world. Then when they can, we go back and we do the obedience and all that stuff. And that is where, all right, you've got to think about stuff. You've got to listen to me. You've got to respond the first time. Not only when I get really mad. 
So be very cautious about the different kinds of thinking because they're, you know, these are smart creatures. They're not like us, but they're smart creatures and their minds work in different ways. And it's very useful if you can understand what part of their head and their brain you're working with right there. So make sure you always give them something to think about. Young, medium, old. Make sure that you give them some physical stuff. Make sure that they are somehow able to tune into the passions they have in their life, even during these short, dark, cold days. That's the greatest mental health for both of you <laughs> that you can find. So that's today's podcast. I'm almost just getting back, you know, to being able to do this every week. Still trying to convert over to a very, very different lifestyle. Um, some days are good. Some days are not. Um, but I'm getting there. But I'm not going to miss this dog stuff. I really enjoy this. And, and I hope you guys are finding it useful. And uh, I will uh, go probably with some more listener questions on the next one. I hope everybody's doing well. Have a great holiday season. A super safe hunting season. And I will be back uh, very soon.